Hello and welcome to our latest episode, our Sabbath School From Home discussion. Uh, it looks as if we're finally getting out of lockdown, uh, but we have so much in the habit of, of making these podcasts and, and enjoying them so much that we can't, we've got too much inertia. We just can't stop. So we've, we've got a really great topic this week following on from last week's discussion on Jesus as Master, and we're so glad that you can be here with us for our discussion. My name's Cameron, and I live in Launceston, Tasmania. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken, uh, also in Lonnie. And this is Luke calling in now from a hotel in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, joining from Sydney. Now, last week we had a discussion on Jesus as Master, and uh, we didn't fully manage to exhaust that topic. Uh, neither did the lesson writers, because they've devoted two weeks to the discussion. There are two aspects in particular that we wanted to continue on in this week's discussion. Uh, one of them was the concept of expertise. We live in a fairly complicated world, and a first century Jew would feel a little out of place. How would Christ cope in today's world? Would, would, he, be, would he be an expert? What would he be an expert at? That's one question. And the other question is, uh, people who are masters, one of their distinguishing and defining uh, attributes is that they see the meaning behind rules and don't always adhere to the rules. They adhere to the deeper truth behind the rules. They are able to make judgment about which rules are appropriate for which times and which contexts. And experts are often rule breakers. I know some experts who fit into this category very well. Uh, one of them is, uh, just before we jump into the, the Bible reading, is uh, Barry Plain, who I think <laughs> Mark and Luke taught you, taught you design and technology. I did some fiberglassing with Barry, and fiberglassing is very fussy. You need to mix the chemicals together in, in exactly the right ratio. You might have an error of a fraction of a percent uh, for how much hardener you need to put into the resin, and it's all different depending on temperature and humidity. And, and when I did fiberglassing with Barry, he'd look up at the sky and he'd swirl the resin in the tin and he'd sniff the air and he'd say ah normally you only put in one and a half percent resin but i don't know i think it's going to take a bit longer today i'll um i'll throw in a bit more and it always worked (laughs) the only time that i mixed resin where i meticulously followed uh the the sort of provided formulas it didn't work at all Well, my most memorable um, Barry Plain experience was when I asked him how much, on one occasion, how much um, resin we needed to mix up for a project. He said, oh, just one or two mouthfuls. Ah, very good. <laughs> These two questions made us think of a particular Bible passage. The two questions are about expertise and about, about how experts are sometimes known for not adhering to the rules too closely. And the passage that it made us think of is in Matthew 12. We'll read a few verses each. I'm going to start from Matthew 12, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day, and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored, just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Mm, what a story. This is one of my favourite stories for a, a whole bunch of reasons. One of them is is that Christ is so clever. Mm. He's such an expert at playing the room. He's such an expert at reading people's minds, reading people's hearts. And... and you know, when they, what can they accuse him of? They don't even see him do the healing. No one sees the hand transform in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's the way I, I, I read the, yes. the text. Christ says, all right then, show us your hand. And so it's already been done. Um, and they haven't seen him do anything. And he doesn't claim to have done it. And they either attribute the healing to him and blame him for breaking the Sabbath, in which case they are acknowledging that he has been given the power to heal. If, if you were wondering, am, am I a master of anything on the caliber of Jesus? You can ask yourself the question, is there a group of people plotting to kill me? <laughs> yes. Because yes. it seems also the characteristics of, of somebody who, who achieves an exceptional level in, in whatever, that, you know, that makes people unhappy with them. You know, whether mm. through jealousy or because it, it, it um, they have the ability to disrupt power structures um, or, or call out hypocrisies um, or, you know, point to societal injustices. Uh, they, masters, disrupt the status quo. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus more than, than anybody else. Yeah, he certainly disrupted. I get the feeling from this story that the Pharisees were not planning to kill him because of them feeling that he broke the Sabbath. I think the Pharisees were planning to kill him because they felt their position of authority and prestige in society was under attack. Oh, a- a- absolutely. If, if you, if you they read... They say as much. Yes. They don't care at all that he has broken the Sabbath. Uh, the whole reason that they have uh, wanting to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath is not because they care about preserving the Sabbath. It's because they are trying to get rid of him as a threat to them. Lockett, they actually say it explicitly because there's a passage, isn't there, when they say, we've got to deal with this man. If he incites a rebellion, the Romans will take our temple away from us. Yeah. Which, which is an insightful comment. It says that they expected the Messiah to lead a military revolt against the Romans. That's what they believed would happen. But it also says that they, did, they didn't they did actually want the Messiah they believed in. Mm. Jesus knows what they uh, th- their priorities and desires are because he, he, and he tells them he knows it in verses 5 and 6. <laughs> More or less directly, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Mm. Mm. I think there's a danger that we fall into here. Uh, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, but there's a danger we fall into when we uh, just say, oh, the Pharisees are bad. Uh, they're just the, in it for their own selfish motivations. Uh, I don't necessarily 
think that that is all there was to it. Um, they were motivated, uh, at least in part, uh, by what they viewed as being the good for Jewish society. Indeed, it was uh, one of the high priests who said it's better uh, that one man die uh, for the people. Uh, so it wasn't just a, a motivation to maintain their own hold on power, although that may well have been part of it. Uh, it seems to me they were, they were genuinely motivated by ensuring that the status quo remained. Of course, that benefited them, uh, but I, I'm not entirely persuaded that they uh, thought that that was a bad thing for their society. It's, it's also the case, Ken, that most people who do bad things do not think they are doing bad things. And there's, and there's a lesson for us there. Um, yeah. uh, I think a really a, a, a strong and powerful lesson that we need to think very carefully. It's not just our motivation uh, that matters. Uh, there is an objective good uh, and an objective evil. And we can think we are doing the best thing uh, mm. when we are not. But can, can there is a sense in which their motivation is compromised. If if they believed that the Messiah was going to lead a military revolt against the Romans, and they genuinely trusted God to send a Messiah at a time that was the right time for the nation of Israel, they would have backed Christ. So their statement that, you know, this guy might revolt against the Romans and then and then our temple would be taken away from us really, really goes to show that that they are hypocrites. I'm sure if they were asked on the street, are you eagerly awaiting the Messiah, they would have said yes. In, in a and sense. when push came to shove, they weren't willing to risk it. And the it, it wasn't. What separated, this is the thing that I see as, as significant out of all of this, uh, particularly to Adventists, is what separated the people who are able to accept Christ as their master, accept Christ as an authority figure, from those who couldn't, was not how correct their doctrine was. Mm. There were people with incorrect doctrine, like the disciples, who found their way to accepting Christ, and there were people with incorrect doctrine who who didn't. So an emphasis on being correct is not sufficient. It might be necessary, like a desire to seek the truth might be a necessary criteria, uh, but it's not a, a sufficient criteria. That that's one of the points I was I was going to make, Cam, was that um, in a sense the the difference between the Pharisees and the disciples and you put in, in doctrinal terms, is is very small. They they essentially all had the same beliefs about the Messiah and also specifically about Jesus, that he was here to conduct a military revolt and, and save the Jews from the Romans. It's just they had very different ideas of whether or not that would be a good thing. Um, but I think, Ken, it's a really good point. Um in my experience, you should be very, we should be very careful about judging the motivations of others in, at all, because you should be very careful about judging the motivations of an entire group, say the Pharisees, because of course, a group is made up of individuals and individuals can vary greatly, even within what seems to be a homogenous group. So for example, some of the Pharisees might have been very earnest in their opposition to Jesus with, with very good motives, 
and some might not have been. We don't know, so we shouldn't judge them. Um, uh, and the second point is you shouldn't judge individuals because we don't know what's in others' hearts, and we don't know the circumstances and the information that they're acting on. And of course, as the Bible teaches us, you know, he is without sin can cast the first stone. We have to ask ourselves the questions, and it, it is a worthwhile question. It's one of the ones that we're uh, discussing today. If we were presented with Jesus in our modern context, would we accept him or would we be like the Pharisees, see him as a threat to our establishment? You know, it's interesting. This this podcast will go to air post-US presidential election. So we can't comment on that. Not that I have a huge desire to bring that into it. But it's just interesting looking in the States and, and around the world, generally, in other countries too, um, there, there seems to be a sort of uh, popular politician over the recent couple of years who's thrived and one of the strings to their bow has been sowing distrust of experts. Can't trust these experts. I'm sick of hearing hearing from experts. Um, mm. The experts yeah, get it wrong. The experts get it wrong, which is obviously true. The question is whether they get it wrong more or less than non-experts um, in their field of expertise. Uh, so... You know, uh, we do live in a complicated world. How would Christ fare in our world? Well, I did do some thinking about this, Cam, and I think it's important to uh, make... I am not sure, because, uh, you know, in the note that Lachlan wrote, it was it was a, a brief one. So I want to ask the group to clarify this question for me, this hypothetical. Is it a case where we take, say, 33-year-old Jesus from his life and work in the Middle East 2,000 years ago and transplant him to the modern day and how would he fare in those scenarios? Or are we being a little bit more fair and saying that as it was that time, he has the opportunity to be born into this world and grow up living in it and understanding it as a person? Because mm. they're uh, quite different scenarios. That, Luke, but I can... I can see why it would make it could possibly make a difference. Uh, well, it, it's also a question of why was Jesus born into the world as an infant? Why was he not just sent as a fully functioning adult to do his work? That would have been faster, as it were, though obviously time's not so much of an issue. I wonder whether the question, and that's a very good question, but I wonder whether the question is not even deeper than that. Uh, if indeed he is divine uh, and the God of the universe, why did he not simply come as God? Why did he come as a human being at all? And But I think part of the answer to the question that we have posed needs to recognise uh, that that saying that he said in this passage, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in this case, he's saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, but of course, uh, he's also Lord of all creation. Uh, in him, we live and move and have our being. And uh, creation groans waiting for his return. If we do believe that he is the Lord, if we do believe that he is, if you like, the cosmic Christ, um, uh, if we believe that he's the, 
master of the universe. What does that say about the answer to the question? I mean, there is there is one extra element. I know I know so far we have not managed to answer the question at all, but merely pose more questions. Um, <laughs> so I thought that I thought of another question we could throw into the mix. So the the question is, how would Christ fare in the world today? How how does Christ fare in the world today? The church is described as Christ's body. We're, we're tasked with being Christ in the world. In one sense, this question is not so hypothetical. Mm, that's a good one. I was going to answer it in a um, in a way that makes slightly more sense, speaking about the the individual person of Jesus rather than his representation in the body of the church. If you read the Gospels, it's it's so easy for us to think of Jesus as being a religious expert. His expertise relates to the kingdom of heaven and to the ways of God and to dealings with people. Um, and I guess it's easy to picture him as being a little bit like the sort of hermit monks or um, uh, I guess any kind of slightly slightly charismatic religious leader. But it's also true that Jesus gets challenged on occasion with with other sorts of issues. You know, they come trying to tackle him with an with an issue on civil economics when they ask about taxation. And I know that that is a question about authority structures, but it's more of a political question than it is a religious question in terms of of its content. Jesus doesn't just give a a reasonably competent answer. He gives a very very good answer. Um, and also, I was thinking when Jesus is con- is in front of Pilate, is it Pilate or is it Herod? But uh, in towards the end, near his crucifixion, he's able to have a conversation not with a religious leader but with a political figure that is thought provoking for that politician. And so, I suspect that Jesus was a little bit more of a broader expert than we often imagine when we just reach for our default mental pictures. It, I'm reminded, Locke, of that, that um, it's Trudeau, isn't it, in Canada, who was at a university and yes. um, he got a question, didn't he, from a reporter on something to do with quantum physics. That's right. I, I think that the reporter may have even been trying to show him up a little bit or catch him out or just give him a little bit of, of a reminder of his place. Um, but in any case, whatever the motivation for the question, it related to quantum computing. And it was Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, proceeded to give a, a fairly robust impromptu lecture on quantum physics and its application to quantum computing. Certainly, physicists the world over were pretty excited about it and wanted to sign him up as their own Prime Minister then and there. So um, he surprised everyone. Um, you know, maybe Christ would surprise people in in the same way and and why ought he not be able to do that um if he's somebody who can raise people from the dead uh why would he not know uh about how COVID 19 works um if he's somebody who we take to be able to if not change the molecular structure of uh, uh water into grape juice himself uh at least uh, harness the power that enables that to occur. Um, uh, if if we give any credence to uh, the ability to perform miracles, uh, then he has incredible knowledge uh, about the physical makeup of the world and how to manipulate it. I think the one aspect of your question 
as it pertained to the mod the technologies in our modern world it's that's the one where we have the most difficulty trying to find any sort of textual precedent i think looking in the bible just because certainly compared to our world the the you know middle eastern society 2000 years ago was pretty low tech um you know i don't find anyone in the gospels bringing jesus an engineering challenge uh, so that one's a hard one in terms it of precedent. Does comment lock on the tower that fell over? All oh, right, and but, well, but his, that's right. Comments on its theology, theological implications, not not the engineering basis. No, well, but I, I, no, I have to correct myself. He does warn about the dangers of building a house on a sandy foundation. He was a carpenter. And about the advantages, don't, don't the architectural. Don't talk yeah. about that because David Stafford told us once in E14 that sand actually makes quite a good foundation. <laughs> yeah, but not sand if it's right near the river. Isn't the story that it will get washed away? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's certainly it's certainly the case that sand needs, I think, a certain particular sort of foundation for it to be transformed into a effective. <laughs> no, so that's true. That's true. He was a carpenter. Uh, he would need to know uh, certain basic things, at least, about structural integrity well if i can if i can bring it back to my question which none of you answered to my satisfaction <laughs> anyway um <laughs> what was the value of him being a carpenter why is it even mentioned why why did he even do it it's got nothing to do with his seemingly on the surface nothing to do with his his actual purpose well i'm a compulsive maker i enjoy making things uh, my garage is too full of tools and this is why I'm hoping to build a shed soon. And uh, I've explained to my wife that uh, she's got the chronology wrong. Uh, that I, I don't think of, I don't think of tools that I need to get to 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 um, allow me to complete a certain project. I find projects that will require me to buy more tools. Uh, <laughs> and, and we are, of course, made in God's image, and God is a, it's someone who makes things and finds enjoyment out of it. So maybe it was compulsive. Maybe Christ had a hobby. Maybe he just liked making stuff. Maybe it was an important part of his education. Mm. Maybe the, the, the 30 years he spent on earth, all of them, were in some way essential to him being the person he was and doing the things he did in those three years of work. And he wouldn't have been able to do those unless he had the earthly existence prior to that. that that's my suspicion. I don't have a huge amount of evidence or theological basis for that. We make a mistake, and Lewis points this out in many of his essays, in assuming that the people of the ancient world were simple-minded. Mm. Um, they weren't. The fact that they didn't have telephones... i tell you what. We make fun of alchemists in the Dark Ages trying to turn different substances into gold, and we laugh at their superstition. We have never lived in a more superstitious age, in the sense that mm. when I pick up a smartphone and I touch the screen, I have no idea how it works. It's like I'm casting a spell. And if I wave my hand over the glass and, and do a physical sort of incantation, which involves touching it in different places, I can cause it to play a video of a cat falling off a roof or something and and also you know a very significant thing like that or i can send pictures of smiley faces to my friends so i don't know how it works i i i would be totally unable to explain it we none of us are tech we belong to a technological society but their level of 
actual technical knowledge within each of us is incredibly small. And the people in the ancient world were experts in the things that they did every day. And one of those was thinking and interpreting life. One of the reasons, I guess, that we're having this discussion is that these conversations that we're recording, that we're reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, still resonate with us. The people who wrote them down, the people who followed Christ, and Christ, as the the expert from which these comments came, was able to talk about complicated things. He was a master of ideas. And uh, we we lay too much emphasis. I think, perhaps, in that sense, the question was a bit of a red herring. I don't think that the technology we have today fundamentally alters the basic question of what makes our life a good life. And the, the other comment I had thinking about our discussion is um, getting back to this idea of us being the body of, of Christ. If Christ was here today, and we're saying that he, he would be... as he's God among us, he would he would have insight into the technical things that we deal with. We are his representatives. Does this provide us at least a small amount of a mandate to go out and just be involved in the complicated things around us, to be involved in science, to be involved in you know architecture, to be involved in engineering, to be involved in art and music and, and song social issues and and social issues and to be involved and to say it's true that when Christ was on earth, he didn't go out doing these particular things, but this is something of which he would have been capable. And uh, this is one way that we can give expression to being Christ. Lewis commented once that the world does not need more little books about Christianity. (laughs) He doesn't think that they'll make a significant impact for the simple reason that he said that he had never personally picked up a little book about Buddhism and ever found it compelling. Hmm. And none of us, if we picked up a book on Buddhism or atheism or Islam, I don't think would be seriously challenged. We're completely naive to suppose that producing lots of little books will make a, a radical change to the world. What Lewis said would make a radical change is, what happens if every time you wanted a good book on gardening or a good book on epidemiology or you wanted to hear a good interview Uh, for a famous artist, or you went to see a good architectural design. What if every time you did this, you discovered that the person who'd done it was a Christian? And you said, well, that's funny, this guy's a Christian too. But Cam, don't you know that the only appropriate occupations are doctor, teacher, and pastor? Oh, no, nurses are okay. (laughs) Oh, nurses also, if you're a a lady person. I can't be a nurse. Cut that out. Well... (laughs) Uh, have I told the joke? Have I told the joke about the occupations, the little kids in kindergarten? Have I told that one on the podcast the, the, at the Catholic school? I don't think so. I don't think you have. It's worth. I've told it to you, Ken, before. But yeah. I, was, I was on a um, trip to Cobar at a Stormco trip, an outreach service trip, when I was at school, and we split up on Sunday and went to all the local churches. And I went to the Catholic church, and uh, the priest taking the service. It was a totally new experience to me. Everyone sitting up and sitting down, saying things, and uh, a bit unusual. But at the end, the the priest said that he had a um, a story that had been emailed to him during the week, and he thought it would be very uplifting for the congr- for the church gathered, and he would like to tell it to them now. And the story was that um, uh, it was the first day of school, and all the children come in, they're nervous and they're frightened, and there's been a few tears, and and sister 
Mary is in charge of them and Sister Mary, it's at the local Catholic school and Sister Mary decides that she'll break the ice a little bit and she she asks the children what their name is and and what they'd like to be when they grow up. And, uh, excuse me, what's your name? Oh, my name's Johnny. Johnny, what would you like to be when you grow up? When I grow up, I'm going to be a fireman. Oh, good on you, Johnny, that's lovely. And you, what's your name? Oh, my name's Kate. Oh, that's lovely, Kate. What, What do you want to be when you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be a nurse. That's lovely, Kate. That's fantastic. And Sister Mary turns to the next girl. Elizabeth, what would what would you like to be when you grow up? And Elizabeth says, uh, Sister Mary, I'd like to be a prostitute. And Sister Mary faints. This is too much <laughs> for her. And, um, and she comes too after a few minutes and she says, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, what did you say? And Elizabeth said, um, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. And Sister Mary says, thank God, I thought you said a Protestant. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good story, Cam. What was the, how did it connect to what we were talking about? It was about? allowable professions. Yes. It was allowable. talking about allowable professions. <laughs> allowable professions. Uh, yeah. and, and I interjected to make the joke as a way of saying I 100% agree with you, Cam. And... Um, I, I, as I grow older, I am more and more convinced that the, the sort of ideas I had in my childhood about what you, what was uh, the sort of things a good Christian did, and as opposed to a bad, naughty Christian who played professional sport on the Sabbath, were completely wrong. And serving God is not is not limited to certain career choices. It may be done anywhere and everywhere. And certainly seeking to become good at things, not for personal glory, but just to be to do it the best we can to help other people, mm-hmm. um, is one of the things. Seeking our own mastery is one of the things that we can do to let Christ be active in our complicated technological world. Your comment, though, Luke, is a fantastic segue. Your comment about playing sport on Sabbath, because the passage we read deals heavily with the Sabbath. And it leads into the second issue we wanted to discuss, which was this rather frustrating trait of experts and masters that they don't always pay heed to the rules. Mm. But when we came to that topic, there were two things that immediately came to my mind. Uh, One was one of the greatest musicians of all time, uh, the greatest composers certainly of all time, uh, is um, uh, Beethoven. and I'm no musicologist or music historian, um, but I do recall from my uh, music theory studies in high school uh, that one of the things that made Beethoven so legendary uh, was his mastery that enabled him to break the rules and go beyond the rules uh, in ways that enhanced rather than undermined uh, the musical intent uh, that he was pursuing. Um, there were, at that time... In the process, Ken, he created new rules. Yeah, quite. And at, at that time, there were certain forms and structures and uh, harmonic transitions that were uh, appropriate and ways that you started a piece of music and introduced a theme and then um, and, and how you would do it and, and uh, uh, that, you know, you wouldn't go from... Uh, E flat major to E major and then straight back again Um, and he broke those sorts of rules 
Uh, and uh, but in a way that expanded uh, music uh, in a well, I was going to use the word expert, but it, and, and it's not just expert or masterful. Um, it's it's beyond that. Innovative. Uh, uh, well, but not just innovative. Uh, sublime. So yes, yes, something more of that nature. The word's not coming to mind. Yeah, I think this is this is really interesting because it highlights experts don't just break rules in a destructive way. Uh, it's not like the person who are, who cowers in the docks before you can in a weekday, who who's just broken the rules to be to be destructive. Experts break the rules to open the door to new ways of seeing things and and whether it's you know throughout um you know drawing and painting the art world is full of the history is full of uh, conventional way of doing things and then someone breaks the rules and tries to do it with you know whether it's cubism or whatever it might be and creates an entirely new way of doing it the two comments i, I thought are coming from what you just said like one is your comment about you know destructive rule breaking it made me think of Toad, of Toad Hall. <laughs> and, exactly. Yeah, and he's cowering in the dock, and there's a great passage there where he's in court, and, and they're, they're laying down the law, and they're trying to evaluate his sentence, and they say, well, of course, stealing the motor car is the most serious crime. He's regarded the most serious crime, and so it should be. Uh, but, of course, cheek to a policeman carries the heaviest penalty. And so it yes. all. And he, he gets something like he gets something like three months for stealing the car and nineteen years for being rude to the policeman. Indeed. So but this actually this actually is a really, really interesting point for us to pick up on. So the passage we read in Matthew chapter twelve has two different episodes. There's the picking of grain and the healing of the of the withered hand. They're both relating to the Sabbath. And I have a challenge for us because our faith tradition places a lot of emphasis on Sabbath, on Sabbath keeping as being one of the Ten Commandments in particular. But when I read the Gospels and read the account of Jesus and his life and his teaching and his ministry, I don't see Jesus pushing the, pushing the rules very much on murder. In fact, if anything, in the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to even be more attentive to the rules. Yeah, um, you know, you, you've got to be more rule abiding on that one and i don't know um idolatry adultery theft even respect for parents he he really lays into the pharisees for for saying for telling people that they can give their money to the church instead of looking after their aging parents right so so jesus is very law abiding i guess that's the point that i'm trying to get to except for and the caveat here at the start is, of course, Jesus does keep the Sabbath, and 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 he is a a Sabbath keeping Jew. That what that is what he is historically. But against that backdrop of Jesus being pretty straight down the line on the murdering and the idol idolatry and all the other things, he just absolutely slams them again and again on the Sabbath. Every, mi- and, every miracle. And, he does on the Sabbath was unnecessary. It was non-time critical. He could have yeah. Done, every have single one of them could have waited till the sunset. And you know the one that we read here is is no different. The the hunger even then no one's died of starvation because they were hungry in the middle of the day. You know they could they could have waited. There was nothing that was essential about it in in a in a physiological sense. So I have a question then. If masters can break rules because of deep insights that are pushing the boundaries of understanding beyond what is 
being considered conventional, then what is it that we ha- we are challenged to take out of the fact that Jesus, the one dominant rule-breaking theme, you know, Beethoven didn't break all the rules. He kept the scale the same. Um, he he, there's all sorts of things Beethoven was willing to to stay confined by, but there were some things that he broke, and he broke those conventions and rules to open us to new ways of thinking. And it's the same, you know, um, when when Einstein came along and gave us relativity, he sort of broke the rules of Newtonian gravity. Uh, but he accepted all sorts of things. He accepted the calculus and he accepted the mathematical framework and the fundamental idea that you could describe some of these sort of cosmic relationships like gravity. So he, he followed so many of the rules and broke just some. And it's, I think, that idea that I want to explore momentarily. Jesus seems to go out of his way to challenge his society on the Sabbath. It's that particular rule, isn't it? And so what's the deep insight? Um well, I've, I think that the, the Pharisees are quite hypocritical on this issue. And your comment when you said, of course, Christ keeps the, of course, Christ was the Sabbath keeper. The question is, were they Sabbath keepers? And I've preached, ah. a, ser- I've preached a sermon on this lock, which means that entitles me to just as much hypocrisy as the, as the Pharisees and Sadducees. I thought, I thought you <laughs> so, were going to claim expertise, Cam. No, uh, because the honest truth is... divine expertise, which surely the, you must have in order to the preach The problem is, well, I've, I hope so. I preached a sermon on it, and the sermon, the conclusion of the sermon basically was, I don't think I ever have kept the Sabbath. And since preaching the sermon, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I, now that you've, you've sort of called the ideas back to mind, like, I don't even know if I've improved. So... <laughs> I, I, that's not very good. I do, I do think I could hazard a guess at what the deep insight is that Christ was trying to get at. And it's this. God's not pleased by you not doing stuff for the sake of not doing stuff. The not doing stuff was meant to serve a purpose. Mm. And the purpose, is, the purpose is pretty clear. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, which means... No capital. It's actually going to cost you. And that's the first problem with Sabbath keeping. Sabbath costs me nothing. Mm. So I'm already not... And I don't work six days a week, so I've already broken the commandment. (laughs) Uh, On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter. Well, I never make my kids work for their meal in the same way that kids would have worked in that society. But the idea is that your kids will get the day off, sons and daughters. Your servants will get the day off. Foreigners in the gate will get the day off. So everyone was meant to benefit. People were meant to notice the Sabbath. If you were, yeah. if you were, if you were a foreign worker, an itinerant fruit picker, you were meant to be the. You were meant to be saying, you know, oh, look, let's go fruit picking over there in Israel. You get a day a week off there. In other words, the, the Sabbath keeping was meant to benefit people. You do without things, so that other people can benefit. Our neighbours, the neighbours of every Seventh-day Adventist household, ought to just be so glad when Sabbath comes around. Mm, And mm. I I fail both tests. The Sabbath doesn't cost me anything, and it doesn't really benefit the people around me. Mm. I I, I had a thought about this topic to do with masters. This is not as good an answer as the one you've just given, Cam. But this may be relevant. 
I've always had a little bit of an issue with the, you know, at, at a time there was a great popularity within our church for the WWJD bracelets and associated questions. And it's, it's yes, a thoroughly yes. worthy intent. Hmm. WWJD is what would, what Jesus would Jesus do? But I think we do have to be careful taking Jesus as a personal role model because we are not, I mean, if you say you're faced with a sick person, what would Jesus do? He'd tell him his sins are forgiven and heal him. Well, if you can't do that, you maybe need to reconsider how we follow the example of Jesus. Because you can try and imitate a master and pretend that you're the master, or you can try and learn from them. And I think it's important that we understand what we're supposed to do with Jesus, try and learn from Mm. him, not be exactly like him. Because when we can't do that, Mm. Uh, and we shouldn't because we're, we're not the Messiah. The, the question's just slightly incomplete when you ask it in, what would Jesus do? Uh, the, the question that we should ask is, what would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? Yes. How would Jesus live my life? How should I live my life in the way that Jesus would? If he were doing what I or, do. Or you could say, what would Jesus tell me to do, guide me to do, mm. instruct mm. me in doing? Mm. Mm. What should I do? It's <laughs> mm. mm. <laughs> perhaps the best Essentially. question. What, what should I do as Christ's representative? I mean, it's not a hypothetical that if, what would Jesus do if he was here? Well, he is here in you, so do it. So are we going to start creating WSID bands and we can sell them as, as fundraisers for this podcast? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, sort of, Wasid has got just as much, you know, sort of um, catchiness as, uh, as WWJD, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, which yeah. is to say none. <laughs> Neither of them flawed. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been turning to the Sabbath commandment in Deuteronomy and it's even more explicit. It's not just your children or your servants or the alien within your gates. Specific mention is made of your animals, mm, mm. which is missing from Leviticus. So Sabbath is a day where we should use our resources and our time to promote social justice, yeah. justice for the natural world. Mm. And then it's reminded, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget what it's like to have a boss. When you are cool the boss... boss. You spend one day a week making sure that you're the people under your control, the people over whom... This is the question, you know, should, should, all we, should, should we or should we not turn on the light switch on Sabbath because someone is doing work? That, that's someone. I, I don't happen to be the head of a business that employs people to run power stations. It, but there are people genuinely under my control, and I could, I could spend a day a week making their lives better, and that's what Christ says, is, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And I find that all sorts of aspects of our Sabbath keeping increasingly don't satisfy me. The emphasis on rest. Look, there was a time where people needed physical inactivity to let their bodies rejuvenate. I am getting fatter every year, I, and I live in a culture where, the, where inactivity is one of the major causes of health problems. I, I don't need it. That, it's genuinely just not relevant. Mm. 
In fact, if you take it to mean, if you say you have to rest from what you do six days a week, well, six days a week, I teach. That involves me moving from a desk to a whiteboard, I don't know, 50 times a day. And yet teaching is far from the most sedentary modern occupation. Yes, yeah. So to rest from that, I should really be going to the gym every Saturday. As in, I need a rest from inactivity, not a rest from activity. Um, So the health side of Sabbath keeping, I don't think is achieving its aims. Um, The sacrificial side of Sabbath keeping is definitely not happening. Uh, The way I keep the Sabbath doesn't really cost me anything. Uh, The benefiting other people part of Sabbath is, is not really happening. Uh, I, I guess when we help or volunteer in church, we're helping the people in the church to have a meaningful Sabbath. Even then, we do turn up to church too often looking for a, um, social a personal event. A, a social event or a person. Uh, what did you get out of it? Um, mm. I really got something out of church today. Well, you know, maybe we need to turn up and say, what, what can I put into church today? What can I do to make someone at church feel special? And pick the, pick the person where it really costs me something to make them feel special. Maybe I disagree. Maybe I've had an argument with them ongoing for the last few years about a point of doctrine or the colour of the carpet. Or I think this really does raise an interesting uh, point, Cam, because um, what, what it deals with is the purpose uh, of the rules. Um, so there are certain rules, you know, you should not do your own pleasure on the Sabbath is one of the things that we that we told and so we say well did I get any joy out of that oh well uh, clearly that wasn't uh, something that I ought to have done on the Sabbath that uh, it, uh, it, it brought me pleasure that um, is how the uh, the seventh day Adventist traditions of yeah. Sabbath seem to have been designed how yeah, could, how could uh, our metric here is how little we're all enjoying this uh, if nobody's enjoying it at all we've succeeded yeah, yeah. <laughs> it remi- reminds me of the taxation uh, uh, the 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 uh, alleged um, uh, you know, mission statement of the taxation office. If if we've brought one small smile to somebody's face today, then clearly somebody's stuffed up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good book. Well, I I once I once asked a church about flying radio control planes on the Sabbath because the Sabbath commandment deals with work and it deals with rest, but it doesn't deal with hobbies, which are which are neither work nor rest. In fact, it's a whole category. It just shows we live in such a Relative to people of history, we we are we have so much leisure time. Yeah. Um, yes. How, how do you interpret Sabbath in that in that commandment? Uh, sorry. How do we interpret Sabbath in our context? And I made the observation. This was at a time where I worked in Adventist school, and I said to the church, "Look, I I only know Adventists. I don't actually know anyone on a first name basis. Anyone outside the Adventist church? I went to an Adventist school, and I went to Avondale, and I'm teaching at Adventist school. The only people that I, I meet with are people who." go down to a local oval and fly radio control aeroplanes. And occasionally I bump into them there when I'm flying on a Thursday afternoon. But they mostly go on Saturday afternoons. Ought I not go there explicitly with the purpose of at least getting to know someone outside the church? And I was told very firmly that the Sabbath is not for doing our own pleasure. And nothing made me want to rush out right then and there and fly a radio control aeroplane on the Sabbath more than the arguments I was given against it. <laughs> well, I think this is this is really where the other aspect of this comes in, right? We don't you look historically, you don't get the the big insights in deconstructing or critically reevaluating the law 
um, just from the hooligans. You get them from the masters. And in the passage there in Matthew 12, Jesus very clearly self-identifies. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the master of the Sabbath. He's, he's well-equipped with the understanding, the depth of understanding, the expertise, the, the um, authority that comes from demonstrated uh, ability to contribute constructively to this thing. When, when Jesus is calling us to re-examine, in particular, the Sabbath rule, I think that he's doing so with a very, very um, legitimate platform. And and I think that's probably one of the things that's really helpful to remember here. Jesus is master of the Sabbath. Yes, and and we aren't. <laughs> to, to to make my point again, um, I I wanted to say at some point in this discussion, I mean, here may not be the best point to put it in, but but it was relatively recent in the conversation that um, the the scripture that Jesus quotes in verse seven is is rather illustrative. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, that's from Micah six. Uh, sorry, from Hosea six six, and the full well, verse. Very, is, very, very like Micah six eight, but it, well, uh, Hosea yes, six six, which is why yeah. I confused myself because it reminded me of Micah six eight. The full verse is: For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And that second part seems to me very much like what you were saying. Cam, acknowledgement of what God wants and desires, as opposed to simply following the rules because yeah. they're the rules. And and God has his image imprinted on every person we meet. And when we say to someone, be well fed, I'll pray for you, as James says, it's not enough. And and um Acknowledging God is partly, and this is what the Sabbath commandment is about, is acknowledging that the people around us, the people under us, the people over whom we have some control or power or influence, they bear the image of God. Mm. And they are deserving of our time and our energy. Um, I uh, feel compelled after this discussion to um, a particular course of action and I might lead it to our listeners. I'd be interested to know what they think. This is the last week of school for my year 12 students, and some of them are properly stressed. In Tasmania, we have slightly different rules to the rest of the state. In Tasmania, if a student has shown improvement on a, on a topic over the course of the year, their, their grades are not locked in cement. They're not, once you've done a test, it's not something that can never be changed. If you have shown that you've improved, then, uh, then I'm required to submit a grade that reflects the student understanding at the end of the year, not, not an average of their grades throughout the year. And if I can see that a student did very poorly at the start of the year, um, but then since learnt and the, in the last couple of tests did much better, I don't average the grades. I can say to the student, look, you've actually improved a fair bit. I can give you a retest on that topic and you can lock in a higher grade. You can prove to me that you are actually at this higher standard and I can then ignore the earlier tasks or at least weight them much less. And this, I think, very good educational practice. The point is that the grades are due on Tuesday and uh, I have about three days left to finalise grades and I have some students who who find the stress 
of leading up to exams very stressful. I have one student, Luke, who's in Hong Kong, who's been there since March mm. because she went back before the shutdown. And she's been trying to follow school remotely for nine months. Oh, eight months. Is it then inappropriate for me to say, I cannot help you? Uh, by the way, I don't make a habit of helping my students on Saturday. That's as a general rule, I don't do that. But but given that this is for these students a, a, a time of great anxiety, a time of great stress, would it perhaps send the wrong message for me to say to the student, look, I can't help you if you have an urgent question tomorrow because I, I'm entitled to a day off? Well, I think there's an answer to that, uh, Cameron, and I think Jesus makes it very clear um, because he asks the question in verse 10 of this passage that we looked at, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, interesting that he's looking at the specific example of what he's dealing with. He then deals with some other examples and then answers the question in precisely these words. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The test of good Sabbath keeping is not whether it brings you pleasure. Uh, it's not whether it meets uh, a rule of particular conduct. The question is, is what I am doing good? If the answer is yes, it is lawful. Indeed, it is the proper way to keep Sabbath. Yeah. And if it costs you something, the experience of doing it for someone else has extra significance because it's done on Sabbath because Sabbath is a day where we spend our resources to the benefit of those around us. Mm -hmm. well, well, we can't continue for too long. It's very topical. I just got four messages from my student in Hong Kong. Well, <laughs> you, you wow. so, been, let's call that a sign. And, I, I, I think quite so, and I think you should go and answer them uh, on okay. the Sabbath night, Cam. Um, yes. And, and I think perhaps we ought round this up. Um, uh, and I know there'll be lots of other uh, comments and thoughts that our listeners will no doubt have. If you would permit me uh, to finish uh, with this thought, um, which I think wraps up the expertise of Jesus. Uh, and it's from Colossians 2 and uh, verse 3. Uh, so Colossians 2 and verse 3 contains these words uh, that... Jesus holds within himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I think our commitment to Jesus has to be based on the foundation that we recognize him as the one who knows the truth about our lives, what's important to human beings in real life matters, and about our universe. After all, he made it and he made us. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Um, if anyone wants to remonstrate with me and, and correct uh, my Sabbath keeping, um, they can do so by emailing to to the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And if you need um, one, Cam, I know a good lawyer. Oh, good. <laughs> well, uh, it, is, it is an issue, and I, do, I would be interested in hearing from listeners 
it is it is something of a personal crisis for me. I, I don't find a lot of meaning in the way that I keep Sabbath. Well, can I would be interested in in feedback from from people. Let me let me put this up in your defence, um, and as a caution to anyone who I don't know that anyone's listening who would, but anybody who may be thinking about writing into you with with great uh, remonstration. If you were to survey, how do you keep the Sabbath across the Adventist church membership globally, you would find a huge variation from continent to continent. And I know this because it's been done and I've seen some of the results. So we are already more diverse than than most church members would think, um, assuming, as a lot of us, I think, do, that their way they've been taught and their habits are the right one that everybody does, because that's not true already and it is really the problem isn't it when you're asked to follow a person and not a set of fundamentals uh, because Christ was just so consistently confounding to the people he, he hung out with so um, may you be confounded on a regular basis that seems to be a good indication that we're keeping company or at least uh, is at least entirely consistent with us keeping company with Christ so uh, thank you so much for joining in our discussion and we'll continue one next week. We're not, I'm not sure right now what the topic is, but there will be one. So uh, <laughs> join in and, uh, and thanks for, for being with us now.